We are beginning a five-week series on emotions, and you know, emotions are uh, something we talk about, think about, sing about, we watch movies about. The Inside Out movie that came out from Disney Pixar years ago, which tried to explain to little kids like why we feel sad and why we feel happy and why we feel mad. There's a movie that came out recently called The Emoji Movie, where we, we use all these little emojis and emoticons now to express our emotions. We don't even have to use words anymore. We just choose a face that adequately and accurately describes the way we feel about something. Anybody got a favorite emoji that you overuse way too much? Yeah, I thought so. And then classic movies like Anger Management with Jack Nicholson and Adam Sandler. So we, we like to kind of talk about, think about emotions. And emotions are always with us. They, they drive us. They, they guide us. They, they often feel like they're controlling us more than we're controlling them. And where do our emotions come from? Uh, a secular humanistic worldview that wouldn't really believe in God would say, well, emotions are sort of this biological inevitability. Like, they evolved because we need emotions to, to survive. Other religions might say, well, emotions are things that need to be controlled and actually squashed and dealt with, and you need to be uh, more stoic. You need to escape your emotions. But the Bible provides a really unique, helpful explanation for why we have emotions. And the simple answer is found in Genesis 1 and 2, which is this, that you and I were created in the image of a God who has emotions. And when we read the scriptures, we see that God gets angry that he gets upset. We read that God grieves, um, that God delights, that he rejoices. And then we look at Jesus Christ, who was a man who nobody would have accused Jesus of being stoic. He was weepy. He would cry. He would laugh. He had fun at parties. He got angry. He, he, he seemed to blow his, his fuse in the temple. And so we were created in the image of a God who has emotions, which is why you and I have emotions. And if that's true, then it means that emotions are not unimportant. And they're not insignificant. They're not meant to be ignored. They're not meant to be avoided. They're not even meant to be, we're not even supposed to rise above our emotions. Emotions are what they are because we were created in the image of God. And so emotions are a gift. Emotions are a blessing. But like anything that the Lord blesses us with, when used incorrectly or misunderstood, neglected or abused, the emotions that are supposed to be a blessing can actually become a curse in some ways. This morning, as we start our five-week series on emotions, and each week we're going to talk about a different emotion, we're going to start with the emotion of worry and anxiety. A few things have to be said up front about this topic. Worrying is a common human experience, right? It's normative. You don't teach your kids how to worry. They just do, right? We get anxious, we worry. Worry is normal. Worry is experienced by all sorts of by all people in all sorts of different ways. And worry is also an emotion that is experienced by human beings on a spectrum. So if you can envision a large spectrum from that wall to that wall, on that end of the spectrum are the smallest amounts of worry, just little tastes of worry that we have about things that are, we all know to be insignificant. And on this side of the wall is a paralyzing, debilitating sort of worry that prevents us from really functioning and living life that we, in a way that we would like to. And somewhere on this spectrum, worry moves from being subclinical to clinical, which simply means this, that some people engage with and experience worry on a clinical level that is diagnosed and requires assistance and help. And if that's your experience, what I want to say to you is, first off, this message is still for you. Because wherever you fall on that spectrum of your experience with worry, Jesus has something to say to you. 
And I believe Jesus is a healer, he's a restorer, and he gave us emotions so that we can honor him. But the other thing that I want to say is if that's your experience, that you are experiencing worry or anxiety on what would be considered a clinical level, then you shouldn't be ashamed of getting help wherever you can get help. There's a lot of wonderful help out there. And all those are also gifts from God. So whether it's a professional therapist or doctors or medical care, there are things that can be received from God through the hands of doctors and therapists and nurses that are actually means of grace that help us to receive some level of healing. Now, can Jesus do something about all of our worry, no matter where we are on this spectrum? I 100% believe that. But I also believe that there's ways that he gifts us through the gifts that he gives other people. I, as your pastor, I talk to a, I see a Christian therapist every single month. Not because I'm in crisis, but because I'm a human. <laughs> and I need help. And I recognize my need for help. So I just wanted to say that up front because I know a message on worry can be heard quite differently by people in the room based on where you're at with your worry and your anxiety. But here's the thing that's true for all of us. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us, give us wisdom. What gifts do I need to receive to help me with my worry? And so this message is for all of us this morning because worry is normative and normal. In fact, because worry is normative and normal, it's dangerous because we just assume there's no real issue with it. Everybody's worried about something, right? So what's the big deal with worry? And in fact, we'll tell ourselves, well, if I didn't care about that person, I wouldn't worry about them. So actually, worry is an indication of my love and my care and my concern. And those, those things all may be true. But the passage we're going to look at this morning in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, he takes the topic of worry and he includes words like pride and the devil. And so if Peter is lumping worry and pride and the devil into one teaching, then maybe this is a bigger deal than we think. And our big idea this morning is the simple truth that worry has the power to ruin us, but worship has the power to restore us. Worry has the power to ruin us. Worship has the power to restore us. So 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in the second half of verse 5, Peter writes these words. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. This morning, three things we're going to learn from this text about worry. The look of worry, the source of worry, and the end of worry. So the look of worry. Worry actually has a look. If you know someone well, you can look at their face and you know that they're worried about something. Right? It's, a, it's an emotion that you actually can express on your face. You can actually see worry. I see worry in my home. I have three daughters, my wife, myself. There's worry. But most of the worry in our home actually comes from our dog. <laughs> Is there anxiety medicine for dogs? Because we, we have an unusual, I feel like we have an unusually anxious dog. And most of his anxiety is about being abandoned. Uh, he doesn't like when we leave. And so every school morning is torture for him. It's trauma for him because we all leave one at a time. 
So five different times in about an hour and a half, he feels like he's being abandoned by people. I drive my oldest to high school first. I come back. I take our middle school over to the middle school. Then Maddie gets on her bus and goes off. And then I come over to the office. And then like an hour later, Aaron leaves to go work as a TA at the school that she's at. And every single time, he loses his mind. And I can see worry on him. In fact, any of you have a dog that when, he, when they get worried, they yawn? Mickey yawns when he's nervous, when he's worried. He does this really loud, long, exaggerated, annoying yawn every time. And he starts to whimper and he starts to run in circles and he's getting really agitated and upset. And I can see the worry on him. Have you ever seen worry on another person? Maybe it's your kids head off to school and there's a big test. Maybe you look around the dentist appointment office and you look around, everybody looks a little bit worried. Maybe you go out on Black Friday to shop and you get in line and everybody's got this anxiety that I'm not going to get the thing that I woke up so early for. Worry is actually something that we can see. It's a weight. It's a burden. It sits on us. Have you ever felt anxiety and worry just sitting on you? It just sits on you and it slows us down. Peter says something really interesting in here that gives us a clue as to what worry looks like. After he talks about worry, he goes on in verse 8 to give this very interesting uh, directive to his readers. He says, be self-controlled and alert. Now, in the Greek, another way of translating that, other translations use the word sober. Be sober and alert. And what he's teaching us here is that anxiety and worry actually has an intoxicating effect on the soul. So that's why he then says, be sober and be alert. There's something about worry and anxiety that intoxicates us, and just like being intoxicated in the natural makes us not function the way that we should, when our souls are intoxicated, we're not who we should be. We're overly distracted and disoriented and intoxicated by our fears, our worries, and our anxieties. Maybe you've experienced this. There's something at work that is causing you great anxiety, and then you come home. And even though you're home, you're not there, right? Right? It's your, your soul is intoxicated with worry and fear so that even though you're physically pre- present, mentally, you're miles away. Worry has this look about it. Now, what do we worry about? And there's three main categories that I think humans worry about. And the first category is this question, what about me? What about me? I'm always worried about me. Um, my earliest memories of worry growing up as a kid, my earliest memories of being anxious were related to me getting in trouble. Uh, believe it or not, I got in trouble sometimes when I was growing up, and I grew up in a time where spankings were still on the table. <laughs> you still could get spanked, and when I would get in trouble, and I knew that it, now, my parents were good about it, it wasn't out of control, but I got spanked. When I knew a spanking was coming, I would worry so much, and the joke was, my dad would laugh about it years later, he would say to me, David, you cried more before you got spanked than after you got spanked. I'd get myself so worked up into a frenzy because I was so concerned about me. I was worried about me, specifically one part of my body. I was very, very worried about. And all of us, no matter what's happening around us, our, inst- our instinct is to worry for ourselves first. A friend's moving out of town. Who do we think about first often? How is this going to affect me? Poor old me. I'm losing a friend. Something changes in political leadership. Who do we worry about first? Me. How is this going to affect me? And so we're constantly worrying about ourselves because our lives and our worlds revolve around ourselves. This idea of worrying about me, much of our worry is self-centered. And if I was to summarize most of the worry that human beings experience, it comes down to this question, am I enough? Am I good enough? Smart enough? Um, 
respectable enough, successful enough, attractive enough, strong enough, interesting enough? Am I enough? And people outside of the church have their way of dealing with that. Maybe they, they, they go after more money and they go after more stuff. But people inside of the church, by the way, have a whole new way of dealing with that. Often we, we think, am I religious enough? Am I faithful enough? Am I devoted enough? And all of this worry, worry consumes our hearts because it's really all about me. Worry is usually what do people think about me? The second category that we often worry about is not just what about me, but what about my people? In other words, what about the people and the things that I love most? What about them? And having children has a way of really exacerbating this worry because now you're, 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 you're very worried about them because you, you love them so much. And then when you see them experiencing worry and anxiety, it's like their worry and anxiety jumps off of them and jumps right on to you. And we worry about people and things that we love. And while this is natural and even noble and right in some ways, this also often indicates sometimes that there's things that we love more than Jesus because worry often exposes our idols, the things that we trust in, treasure, and look to more than Jesus. And we lose our joy and our hope and our peace because something is happening to something that is primary and ultimate in our lives. So as Christians, we really have a choice when it comes to this idea of worrying about my people, the people that I love, my children, my family, my stuff, my job, my future. We can do one of two things, and this is our only options. We can either give those things to God. God, I trust you with this, and I love you more than these things, so I can give these to you. We can, either, we can either give them to God or we can make them our God. It's one of the two. You'll either worship it, make it your God, and it will have God-like power over you, over your emotions and your well-being, or you can give them to God. That's what we have to do with this fear. And then the last category, I think, of fear that we, or worry that we deal with is not just what about my people, but what about those people? you got to say it that way. What about those people? <laughs> that person that just sped by me on the road and scared me, you know, what about them? Where's the police officer up ahead to pull them over and give them a ticket, right? We want those people to get their just desserts. Whatever is supposed to be coming to them, we're very worried and very anxious and very concerned that everything won't be made right the way that we think it should be made right. And so we want vengeance and justice or at least exposure and accountability and correction and punishment. And we lose so much joy, so much hope because we're just worried about those people who think differently than us, live differently than us, vote differently than us, and we're just thinking, what about all those people and what's coming to them? And so we have these, these reasons that we worry. And then in this scripture passage, Peter makes this weird jump from the topic of worry to the topic of the devil. Now, C.S. Lewis says something really helpful about the devil. He says, when it comes to the devil, there's two equal but opposite mistakes that Christians make. One he calls superstition, and the other one he calls substition. And superstition is like the devil's responsible for everything. You have indigestion this morning? The devil. It has nothing to do with the fact that you ate pizza at midnight last night. It's the work of the devil. Somebody found that parking spot at, at the mall before you did? It's the devil, right? Everything is the devil. And that's a superstition. But then there's also the danger of substition, which is like, really, the devil? Come on, 21st century, we're still talking about the devil. Do we still believe in the devil? And both are mistakes, because on one hand, not everything is because of the devil, but on the other hand, we have an enemy. The Bible makes it clear. So Peter actually helps us here, because he calls the devil your enemy, which means, in the Greek, the one who is against you, like opposing you, or the one who accuses you. Now, let me ask you this. What does the devil use to accuse us? How does the what does the devil use against us? And according to this passage, what the devil uses against you are your worries. 
What the devil accuses you with are your worries. So he may have a big gun, but you got the bullets. You're given your worries, and he's using them against you. He uses them to ruin us. Our sin, our selfishness, our anxiety, our worries. This devil who is like a roaring lion, he will find the things that you worry about, and then he will roar those worries into your heart and into your mind. One of the commentaries I read this week said this, whatever we are anxious about tends to distract us from trusting in God. It pulls us in different directions so that we do not depend on God. And when we do that, we are not resisting Satan, but we're playing into his hand because the devil wants us to put more and more trust in ourselves and others and less and less trust in God. What's the point? The point is this. As Christians, we don't just run from Satan. We also have to run from ourselves in some ways, our worries, our pride, our sin, because worry has the power to ruin us. That's the look of worry. All right, second thing this morning, the source of worry. Now, where does worry come from? And again, I want to clarify that I'm not speaking necessarily to people who have been diagnosed with some sort of clinical level of worry, but general worry that we all experience, where does it come from? And the Bible has an answer, and you may or may not like it, but it is what the word says. Worry, according to Peter here, much of our worry, I'll say it that way, comes actually from pride. From pride. Now, how do we know that? In verse 6, he gives a command. He says, humble yourself under the hand of God. And then in verse 7, it looks like he gives a separate command. Cast your anxieties upon God because he cares for you. But actually, I think the New American Standard Bible translates these two verses best. Because humble is a verb that is in the imperative form, which means it's a command. We're being instructed, humble ourselves. But the verb cast is actually not in the imperative form. It's a participle. Let me explain what that means. He's basically saying this. Humble yourself before God, comma, casting your anxieties upon him. Here's what he's saying. Casting your anxieties Casting your fear, casting your worries upon God is an application of this big verb, humble. So as we humble ourselves, one of the ways that, that is evident is that we're quick to cast our cares upon God, knowing that he cares for you. Worry is a form of pride because when believers are filled with anxiety and worry, here's what we're actually believing, that I have to solve all my problems in my life and I have to solve it in my own strength. If our lives are consumed with the day in and day out worries, we are living, listen to this, we are living as functional atheists, not as Christians. We're actually living as if God doesn't exist. And somehow we have to figure it all out. And some of you are more self-reliant than others, and it's worked very well for you in life. In fact, you're successful in life because you're a hard worker, you're determined, and you're very self-reliant, and you're actually quite proud of that. But I'm letting you know, according to this passage, that could actually be an obstacle for you in casting your cares upon God. Because you may have built your identity around that, and that's a form of pride. The only God that we trust in in these moments is ourselves. And when we trust in ourselves, we overestimate certain things. There's three things I think we often overestimate. And the first one is this word, perspective. We overestimate our perspective. In other words, we overestimate our ability to see things correctly. Yesterday, I had my day planned out. I knew exactly what I was going to do, and I was pretty excited about it. Something happened at 8 a.m. that changed my whole day. How many of you love having your days changed by things you can't control? And I lost my joy. I wasn't very happy. And I was a little bit worried about it. And I was a little bit miserable. And probably, if you could ask my wife, not a lot of fun to be around for about an hour. 
And by 2 p.m., I learned some information that made me glad that I wasn't a part of what I was supposed to be a part of. Here's the problem. How do I know at 8 a.m. what I knew at 2 p.m.? How do you know at 20 years old what you're going to know at 40 years old? How do you know as a parent what you're going to know as a grandparent? And the simple answer is this. You can't, right? You just can't. You can get wisdom from other people, but in terms of personal experience, you cannot know now what you're going to learn later. So are we hopeless? Do we throw up our hands and say, well, see, what do we do? No, here's what we do. We learn to doubt our perspective. We learn to question how certain we are about how life should go. We learn to go at 8 a.m., you know what, I don't love this, but maybe something's going to happen at 2 p.m., and I'm going to go, this was best. We have to not overestimate our own perspective on things. And here's another reason why. Because the Bible, if you read the Bible, it's filled with story after story after story where good things result from events that are absolutely not good from the perspective of the characters who are in that story. Think about some examples. A nation is saved because a mouthy little brother named Joseph is hated by his brothers, thrown into a pit, and sold into Egyptian slavery. A ship filled with heathens ends up worshiping the true God because of their encounter with a disobedient prophet named Jonah who's running away. The great-grandmother of King David, Ruth, meets her husband only after first being widowed, experiencing famine, being a refugee, leaving her home, and everything that she knew. Here's what I'm trying to say this morning. What if you this morning are anxiously and frantically trying to remove yourself from the very circumstances and situations that God has placed you in to restore you, rescue you, and shape you. Don't overestimate your perspective. The story of redemption is not without its ups and downs, its plot twists, and its difficulties, but it is being written by the hand of a faithful God. And it will be written for your good and for his glory. Don't overestimate your perspective. Secondly, don't overestimate your preferences. Real quick on this one. How many of you prayed for something at some point in your life that you're glad God didn't give you? Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, said, thank God that he didn't answer all of my prayers or I would have married the wrong man four times. Be careful about our preferences. We don't always know what's best for us. And then the other thing that we overestimate is our power. Anytime life, anytime the darkness of life really finds you, the worst day of your life, one of the first things you'll realize is how much of an illusion control is. How little control you actually have over anything. And yet we think we control so much. Don't overestimate your power. Luke 12 says this. Jesus says, who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? And when we overestimate our preferences, our perspective, and our power, we simultaneously are forgetting that God also has his preferences. God has his perspective, and God has his power. So in summary here, the heart of worry is pride, and pride, according to Scripture, is resisting the grace of God. So worry is a big deal because worry is actually evidence on some level that we are not receiving or believing the gospel. Now, before I get to my last point, let me just say this. All this talk about anxiety, I know, can make you more anxious. <laughs> the worst thing you can say to an anxious person is, don't be anxious, because now they're anxious about their inability to not be anxious. Thankfully, there's more here. It's not just about the look of worry or the source of worry. The last point this morning is the end of worry. He says in verse 9, resist the devil, stand firm in the faith. Verse 9. 
How do we resist the devil? Now, this is where you read that sort of verse, and you maybe if you've grown up in a church where, where praying against the devil or spiritual warfare was a real thing, you immediately conjure up images of intensity and screaming and crying and sweating and loudness, and, and you think, i got to just get really loud and really strong. Interesting is when Jesus encounters demons, and he doesn't really get loud. He doesn't roll up his sleeves. He just says, shut up. Get out of here. Because he has authority, Right? If you have authority, you don't have to get loud. If you're tall, if you're really tall, you don't walk around saying, I'm tall, I'm tall, I'm tall. Everybody knows. If you have power, you don't walk around saying you have power. Someone's walking around saying they have power. They don't have power. And so what do we do? How do we resist the devil? And according to Peter, we do it by standing firm in our faith. Now, what does that mean? I read this this week. I want to share this with you. This is super helpful. The call to resist the devil does not require believers. This is going to be freeing for some of you does not require believers to do Herculean acts on God's behalf. You don't have to be a spiritual giant. Believers are not encouraged or asked to gather all their resources together and somehow do great works for God. No, resisting the devil means that believers remain firm in their faith, in their trust in God. Believers triumph over the devil as they continue to trust God, believing that he cares for them and that he will sustain them until the end. Pastor Anthony, I'm going to ask you to join me. First Peter is filled, the whole book of First Peter is written to Christians who are suffering and struggling, and it's filled with these powerful reminders for believers. Would you be willing, just humor me, close your eyes for a minute, and let me just t- read to you some of these things that Peter says is true about believers, because they're true about you this morning. Just let, let just hear this as God's speaking this over to you. We have been chosen, you have been chosen by the Father. Before the foundations of the earth were laid, you were chosen by God. You've been given a new birth into a living hope. You have been provided with an inheritance that can never perish. You're shielded by God's power. You've been called out of darkness into God's wonderful light. God is building you into a spiritual house. He sees you as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people who belong to him. And then verses 9 and 10 at the end of our text, here's what it says that God does for you. Number one, he will restore you. God will make you strong. Some of you feel weak this morning. God will make you strong. God will make you firm. Some of you don't know if you can make it to the end. God will make you steadfast. God has called you to salvation. God has provided a way for you and me to be saved through Jesus. So here, look at me. This is what all of this means. We as Christians, we win. We triumph over our worry through trust. But let me clarify, it's not trust in yourself. It's trust in Jesus. It's not trusting in my performance It's trusting in Jesus' performance. The beauty of the gospel and the power of the gospel to kill the worry in our hearts is summarized in this simple truth that you've heard me say before. We are saved, not by the strength or the amount of our faith, but by the object of our faith. Do you hear that? We are saved not by the amount of our faith. Oh, I wish I had more faith. We're saved by the object of our faith, which means this. You can have a lot of faith in the wrong thing and it isn't gonna save you at all. But if you have the faith of a mustard seed, the smallest amount of faith in Jesus, and he'll come to you, and he'll restore you, and he'll establish you, and he'll save you. Worry begins to end when in our hearts we know two things that we don't think we could ever know. We are both known completely and loved completely. Our whole lives we think that's not possible. If someone really knew us, they wouldn't really love us. If someone really loves us, it's because they don't really know us. And yet in Jesus, we have the one who knows us perfectly and loves us completely. 
And if anyone knew this, it was the man who wrote these words that we looked at this morning. His name was Peter. He was a disciple of Jesus. And when he wrote the words, clothe yourself with humility, I can't help but think Peter thought back to the last night that he had a meal with Jesus. And Jesus clothed himself with the servant's robe. And he got down and he washed the feet of his disciples. And I wonder if Peter thought back and thought this to himself. Hold on. Jesus washed our feet that night, but he already knew that I was going to deny him a few hours later. Judas was still in the room. Jesus washed Judas' feet, knowing that Judas was going to sell him out. Jesus washed Thomas's feet, knowing that Thomas would doubt his resurrection. Jesus washed the feet of all of his disciples, knowing that they would abandon him. But he didn't just wash their feet. The story doesn't stop there. He walked to the cross where he died for Peter's denial. He died for Judas's betrayal. He endured the punishment for Thomas's doubt. He gave his life for our sin, our rebellion, our worry. And when we see that, it causes us to worship instead of worry. Because when you see Jesus, you will begin to worship because you realize I'm far too accepted in the beloved to hold on to my daily cares or to let them have a hold of me. Because of Jesus, I'm far too righteous and right before God to let fear direct, motivate, or paralyze my life. I'm far too rich in Christ because of the inheritance he has secured for me to to chase after things that won't last beyond this life. And I'm far too loved to be filled with constant anxiety. Worry has the power to ruin us. Worship has the power to restore us. And casting your cares upon God is an act of worship. Look at Jesus in the garden in his moment of great, if if there was ever a time to worry, it was Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. But in that moment, he wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking about you. He was thinking about me. And he said, not my will be done, but your will be done. And because Jesus said that word and stood up and went to the cross, then 30 to 40 years later, Peter, with all the confidence in the world, could write these words. Cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Let's pray together.